This ordinary time, we've been doing a study in the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, and we're getting down now here to the end of this letter, uh, the last part of uh, Ephesians 5. And we've been trying to pay attention to what it is that Paul's doing and not merely what he's saying, but what is it that he intends this text to do to us? I mean, it's one thing to ask, what does a text say? And we can then just look at the words. and Well, here's what it says. And then we could ask interpretive questions like, well, what do these words mean? But it's a different kind of question to ask, what, do, what, are, what action are these words trying to perform? What is it that Paul is wanting to do to those who would have been the first recipients of this letter? And what is he trying to do to or for us who are reading a letter? Or later, excuse me. So the essence and logic, really, of what Paul's been saying to us is that God has moved and God is moving on our behalf. And he does this not in arbitrary ways, but in concert with his ultimate intention. And the notion or issue of divine ultimate intention is really important because it alerts us to the notion that nothing in our life arises out of the blue. That everything in our life is contextual. It's situated somewhere. Now, sometimes life feels capricious, random, unfair. Why did this happen to so-and-so? You know, Debbie and I were driving home from Fallbrook this afternoon and saw a crash on the five, you know, when, when you see baby seeds out, you know, on a crash, you just think, why? But the notion of ultimate intention, the notion of God springing something into play before there was even space and time as we know it, our creator God just saying, let there be light. And then knowing that what he sprung into action is going to be completed, the New Testament tells us, that then tells us that everything arises out of this context in which God is already operating and at work. So what the things that God is doing, he does in concert with his intentions. He does so, Paul has reminded us over and over again in this letter, because of his covenant love. That is to say, God's steadfast love that he initiated and that he'll never let die. That's what's happening. We sometimes talk about that as grace. Jesus was fond of talking about it in terms of ruling and reigning, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God moving in our midst. You, you might think of it as the operations of God. So now we get to the question, what is this text trying to do? And we know what this text is trying to do because we know what God was trying to do, and that is form a people. So you have God, and then you have God expressing himself in his rule and reign. You have the operation of God. And what that comes down to is God creating a people. So this passage we have before us tonight in Ephesians, and I, I, oh, please look at it in your order of worship, this does not arise out of the blue. I mean, in terms of literature, you know, it arises in the Bible. Uh, we could more narrowly say in the New Testament. We could more narrowly say in the Pauline corpus. And we could more narrowly say it arises here in Ephesians. And that's all true. 
but it arises in the midst of this bigger thing that God's doing. And I, want you to, I wanted you to hear this before we look at the passage again, because what I just said sets the background for the rhythm that's in this text. There's a real rhythm in this text of not this, but this. Not this, but that. And we have to be careful that we don't read this as mere moralisms. And without that context, we would be tempted to do so. But if we understand that this text arises out of the fundamental operations of God that's creating a people, then we can see that this is just a kind of life that we're being invited into and given the capacity to enter into because of this covenant love of God, this I'll never leave you alone love. That's a little hunterism I just invented. Hyphens, I'll hyphen never hyphen leave you alone kind of love. That's what said. this covenant love is. I have chosen you. I'll never leave you alone. I'm going to shape you. And that's the feeling of this text. Because I don't want you to read it as mere moralism. So verse 15. Paul says, be very careful then how you live. And this is that word that in the King James and some of the older translations is the word walk. And this is, I didn't count it up, but about the fourth or fifth time that Paul's used this notion of be careful. Well, not always be careful, but something, something about your walk. Let your walk be this, or don't let your walk be this. And that just simply means our manner of living. So the NIV gets it pretty close when it says, watch how you live. That is to say, be wise and thoughtful. Don't be careless. Why? One of my favorite lyrics these days in the new Beach Boys album is, not a care in the world is where I want to be. Man, it just sounds so great to live careless. Why wouldn't we live carelessly? Because this thing is happening that God's doing, and we say we're his people. And so if God is doing this thing, then we're expected to enter into it and begin to do this thing with him. And if we're being careless, if life is simply random, then we're not there. This is what Paul's saying. Enter into what God's doing, making, he says, the most of every opportunity. And now, now you see this rhythm. Note his rationale for this. There's an urgency because the days are evil. Now, that doesn't mean God created the days as evil. What Paul's wanting us to be present about is that God's got this thing he's doing, but most of the earth isn't doing it with him. So the context in which we're trying to live this life is actually an opposite to what God's doing. So Paul wants you to be careful about your walk, how you live, making the most of every opportunity because there is this urgency. Therefore, he says, now, so just you got to follow his logic here. Be careful how you live. The days are evil. Therefore, now he just, there's this rhythm where he just kind of repeats the same notion. Don't be foolish. And so the antidote that he suggests in this passage to foolishness or the antidote to a kind of careless living is understanding what the Lord's will is. Do you see that in verse 17? Don't be foolish, but rather understand what the Lord's will is, which means that fundamental to our, our personal walk, I mean, I, I suppose this would be true for communities as well, but let's think about this on an individual level for a moment. Fundamental to our personal walk with the Lord is living a life of discernment. But wait a minute. 
Discernment implies revelation, right? You can only discern something that's there, that has been said, or something that's going on, and that's precisely the life that Paul is inviting us into, a life of discernment, where we can note the operations of God, both in the world and his covenant love towards us and to the church. Paul wants us to be alert to that, alert to God's intention, plus his love, plus his grace, and how through that he reveals to us his will. Now, I don't mean to say that he reveals to us the color of the next car you should get. I don't mean that kind of stuff. I mean what he has intended to do and how Paul notes that those operations are amongst us. That's what Paul wants us to discern. Because what's envisioned for our life is similar to the life that our master, our Lord Jesus had, where you would find him alone in a quiet place and connected with his father, and then in public calling disciples to follow him, and then alone on a mountaintop, and then out preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and then alone in a desert place somewhere, and out healing the sick and raising the dead. There was this rhythm of his life where he discerned his father's will and then he announced, demonstrated, and embodied it in public. That's the invitation here. So can you see with me why this goes way beyond moralisms? And it, and it goes way beyond what color dress or suit you should wear? That, this is, that Paul's inviting us into this whole big thing that Paul has going on, or excuse me, that God has going on. So now, verse 18, he gives us a negative. And as I've said, you know, no text arises out of the blue. This negative that Paul gives us about not getting drunk on wine is a very precise bit of context because all around Ephesus and in the cities around Ephesus would have been pagan worship, and it just shows you there's nothing new, that would have involved sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> in this case, sex and drinking. And it was put on this religious garb and so literally there would be these drunken orgies that were thought to be either placating or being in tune with the gods. And so Paul says, don't do that. That leads to debauchery, meaning that's false and deceptive worship. Instead, so now do you see the rhythm here? Be very careful how you live, making the most of every time. Therefore, do this, don't do that. So when we get to this, don't be drunk on wine, and then this instead, this is really crucial to his whole argument. Instead, be always being filled, which is the proper way to interpret that Greek verb. Be always being filled with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, it's an imperative. So here's what this tells us, amongst other things. The turn of the century Pentecostals don't own the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit wasn't invented at Azusa Street. And the 1970s Charismatics don't own the Holy Spirit. And the 1980s Vineyard whatever does not own the Holy Spirit. Paul thought it crucial to Christians walk. Thought it crucial that if you were going to live a life of discernment and really understand the will of the Lord, if you were going to be able to be careful about your walk, if you were going to be able to make the most of every opportunity, 
If you're going to be able to discern that the days are evil and what your father's doing, you're going to have, an, you're going to have to have an ongoing, personal, conversational, interactive relationship with God the Holy Spirit. That is not a Pentecostal notion. That is not a charismatic notion. That is the notion of Paul. But it's not just the notion of Paul. I just heard my dear brother Dennis read the gospel where Jesus said the unthinkable. Literally the unthinkable. These people had prayed for Messiah to come for generation after generation after generation. Think of the story of Simeon. Think of, of um, Mary and Elizabeth and those, you know, all those stories that we're going to read in a few weeks at Advent. And then Jesus has the nerve to say, it's better for you that I go away? I got a feeling Peter went, what the H-E double toothpicks is he talking about? How is it that it's better that you go away? We've been begging and pleading for God to send the Messiah for generation after generation after generation. And Jesus says, it's better that I go away because embodied in one body. Now, this isn't what he said, but I just want you to hear the logic here. That as Jesus was in one human body, he could only be one place at one time. But when he says, I'm going to continue with you via my spirit, that allows all of us to get in on the action. So that allows all of us to hear what he said to Zacchaeus and to come down and have dinner with him. It allows all of us broken men and women to sit with him at a well and let him unpack our life. Go get your wife. Go get your husband. It allows us to hear, if we've led bankrupt lives, to hear him say, Levi, come follow me. And we can come follow him in a way in which we can trust him so much that we can apprentice ourselves to him because we believe that what he taught the disciples, he'll continue to teach us through word and spirit and community. And so as the spirit enlivens community, as the spirit makes the text come alive to us, as the spirit gives us gifts of discernment and stuff, then we have the capacity to follow just like those guys followed. So it doesn't take a rocket science or a theologian to say that central to the Christian faith central to our walk, central to any Christian community is the ongoing person and work of the Holy Spirit. So whenever I see one of these Pauline passages or a passage like Jesus in the Gospels or something in Acts, um, maybe you've heard me say this before, but it every time makes me wonder, how did the Holy Spirit go from being a deeply passionate, coveted presence to a controversial doctrine? I mean, there are reasons for this, but in a sermon, we can't do a, you know, a, a survey of intellectual history, but there are reasons for this. The, the Spirit was sort of weeded out of the human imagination, I'll just, so I can only say this, weeded out of the human, the human imagination through the Enlightenment and the scientific project. And then the, then the Holy Spirit is weeded out of our imaginations in religious ways because of excesses we've all heard about engaging with Him. And so then it makes it very difficult for us as contemporary people, still living as the grandchildren of the Enlightenment, still living in close enough proximity to the nuttiness of the charismatic revival, that lots of us just sort of throw up our hands and go, oh, well, I don't know what to do. And both Paul and Jesus say, you can't, you have a lot of options, but the one option you don't have is to throw up your hands and do nothing. 
regarding the Holy Spirit. You have to find a way to engage with him. So then Paul says, verse 19, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, sing songs from your heart to Christ. The early believers in Jesus basically continued the Jewish traditions that they were handed down. And part and parcel of Jewish worship, both in the temple and in the synagogue, was choral worship. And in the earliest times, without music, and we'll get back to actually doing this at Advent. Remember when we used to say the Psalms antiphonally? We'll, we'll get back to doing that in Advent. So you'd have one side of the church singing, chanting a line of the song, and then the other side of the church singing it back to them. That's been going on since before there was Christian worship, what we think of as Christian worship. But the people of God have always done that. Think of David. David was known as the sweet singer of Israel wrote many of the psalms that were called the psalms. Technically, that word you see in your Bible, psalms, technically that means songs of praise. Except for the psalms, as you know, have this entire range of emotions, from anguish to hope, from fear to joy. They contain adoration, thanks, lament, prayer. But chanting or singing has continued in all Christian worship, as far as we know, I spent a little bit of time trying to study this this week. And as far as we know, it's an unbroken chain. There has never been a time when Christians did not have as a part of what they do singing. Now, sometimes it was chanting. Oftentimes, it was, it was without musical instruments or that sort of thing. But they have always sung their hearts out to God. And this is why, if you count it up, we sing about eight or nine times our songs in one of our average services here. And we do it because it's a basic practice that Paul's commending to us here for worship and formation. It facilitates a kind of closeness, a kind of personal intimacy that can get past just concept and ideals. And of course, it's a hugely powerful medium. And again, just for the fun of it, um, looking at snooping around about this this week, um, nine, more than 90% of us listen to music. I mean, there's not a language that's more amongst us, you know, than our English, than the language of music on the radio and our iPods and iPhones. There's 13,000 radio stations in America. One out of every five of us plays an instrument or sings. The average American is exposed to 1,600 commercials that contain music every day. 1,600 bits of advertising the average American is, it, it comes across their path every day. And virtually all of them have music to them. So if you think about this, music induces multiple responses. Psychological, movement, you know, dance, mood, emotion, uh, cognitive stuff, behavioral stuff. It's thought that music can promote relaxation, alleviate anxiety and pain, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very, very powerful medium. But I can't be the only one who's ever stood in church and saw a lyric that said, Jesus, I love you. Your name is like honey. And didn't come into church really loving Jesus very much at all. Or bummed out or scared or whatever. So what do you do when the lyric to a song expresses lament 
and you come in joyous because you just got a big raise. Or for whatever reason, the worship leader picks out a set that's pretty joyous and you just heard that a relative is back east about to die. What do you do? Well, maybe you do something like this. You know, Jesus, I don't feel very much in love with you tonight, but would you help me? And so these songs that we sing, and if you think about it, they're no different than the scriptures. Have you ever got up one morning to read psalms? And maybe you have that practice of reading five psalms a day. And again, you get up really just sort of giddy with happy, and the, the pointed readings are all these laments. So what we put on that screen is no different than what you find in your daily appointed readings. And so we have to find ways to engage with them. And Paul suggests them as something like a spiritual practice. But we have to be a bit careful with them because they can encourage emotionalism. Like if you've ever been somewhere, I don't know, at a great event, at a, I don't know, a theater or something, or maybe out at the ballpark and you heard the national anthem and planes fly overhead, you know, and you get kind of goosebumpy, you know, and you, you, know, you feel this thing that, that music produces. Well, that's okay because we're human beings, but that's not what Paul's shooting for. Here's why. Feeling something that's produced by music can let us off the hook. It can make us think we've processed something when, in fact, we just felt the emotion of something. And that's not the same thing as having really walked with God through something, some period of our life, something that's happening in us or to us. So a lot of us use music to numb pain rather than deal with stuff. We have this problem, as I said, of singing what we don't believe. Um, music can obviously be self-indulgent. It can be a commodity. Ever heard the term the worship wars? Where one generation loved their organ music and 16th century hymns, and then we had Larry Norman. Right? And it created these worship wars. And so even worship music was turned into a commodity and that people began to deal with it that way. Well, on the other hand, like Cindy Rethmeyer, you know, who leads our worship community, loves to tell the story of one time I was giving a talk to a bunch of worship leaders in Orange County at, I don't know, some hotel somewhere in Irvine or something, I don't know. But she loves to tell this story about me when I made this statement. I said, you worship leaders are actually a lot more powerful than us preachers because no one remembers what we say. You guys write a great hook, and it sits in people's hearts and minds the rest of their life. So write some great hooks that help people be followers of Jesus, that help them understand this theology that we're dealing with. So music can be very powerful and sit in our memories in good ways, sit in our souls in really powerful ways that can connect our mind and heart uh, via this deep intention to be, this deep intention to pay attention to God. And that's what I would suggest to you. When you come in here and the worship set is different than what you're doing, or feeling, sorry, well, just let it help you pay attention to God and pay attention to what's happening in you. So if you happen to be in alignment, how, how great. If you happen to not, well, then pay attention to that. And you can still be here in the community and worship just paying attention to what's actually happening in you. Because if music gets us here, I will personally be really happy. So listen to, think of how I started this message. You have this operation of God, this thing that he's up to, 
And then Paul tells us, here's some ways that you can make sure that your walk, your conversation, your manner of living is caught up into that thing that he's doing. So listen to the words of this old song. This is my father's world. Remember that? I started the message. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems often so strong, God is ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and heaven and earth shall be one. Now see, when music does that to our soul, you can build a life on that. This is my father's world. Nothing that happens to me is out of context or out of the blue. Everything is situated in my father's world.